All right, so I'm in Midtown. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Hannah's here with me as usual, and uh, we are going to be talking about patience today. So, uh, Hannah, how are you? I'm doing well. Very yeah. excited to talk about this. I suppose this is where I say I can't wait to talk about patience. Right? Yes, that's the okay. that's the politically correct thing to do on a podcast. I'm right. so excited about this. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I so enjoyed uh, the sermon on Sunday. Um, if only because like I hear these bits about yourself. I don't think you, you know, any speaker, pastor, teacher reveals a lot about themselves in their process as they're, they're teaching. And I love uh, that you talked about Lightning McQueen and the speed versus Mater because I, my 14 year old um, has always been on high speed. Like everything is fast. Everything has to be efficient. And Harry just like, like everything, like no, he will take shortcuts for everything because he cannot slow down or um, I don't know what, why, like, maybe you can help me here. I don't understand the logic. Like, I don't know where he's trying to go. I don't know why he needs to get there fast, but anything he needs to get done, there will be a shortcut of some kind. I mean, like even like showering and that kind of stuff. It's just like, I have never been able to slow him down. So <laughs> I, I'm notorious for doing, I, it's, it's not logical. It's not rational. It's like a compulsion. Um, oh. and, and, and it's like, Emily makes fun of me because I, I cut through parking lots sometimes and it's like, oh, we're going to save 10 seconds to go through this parking lot yes. or, um, like I'm really notorious for, um, spilling coffee because I'm trying to hold my coffee and do like three things simultaneously. And then I end up just dumping coffee all over something. And so like, they'll literally be like, put the coffee down. Yes. And like, like I've had to learn these like practices of just intentionally slowing down because I don't even, it's not something I'm thinking about. It's just, it's more of like a habit of being, you know, that, that's exactly the way Harry is. And so like, he'll gather up all of this stuff that he has to carry down the steps to his bedroom and, you know, he's juggling it and stuff is spilling over. And I'm like, just take two trips. And he's like, that will take more time. I'm yes. going down the stairs once. Yes. I don't want to come back up and go back down the stairs again, you know, yes. like all to save that 15 seconds. <laughs> and, you know, because of that, um, he ends up breaking a lot of things, dropping a lot of things. And I finally had to like pull him aside because I, I have a similar tendency um, if we're making confessions here. But I said, look, I learned that you actually have to think and slow down and focus on the thing you're doing. Like his brain is running a hundred miles a minute. And this practice of slowing down and being patient is actually something he has to give attention to. Mm. Like it does not come naturally to him. And we have had to teach him stop, slow down, think about what you're doing, move at a slightly slower pace. Like we told him like, kick it down a gear, you know, like just, just, you're not going to 60. Can you bring it down to 35? Um, but it's fascinating to me because his dad's a very methodical patient person, you mm -hmm. know, in that respect. Mm -hmm. And, and it made me just think how much of this question, both, you know, some people are prone to that more intense pushing through life, but regardless, we all have to learn, right. We all have to learn this, um, gift of patience. So, mm -hmm. Like some of us have the, 
have the internal dial already turned up to like nine on the mm -hmm. intensity and like hurry scale. Mm -hmm. But some of it, I mean, some of it's also like we've had to learn to navigate. We've internalized like the cultural kind of impatience, you know, mm -hmm. and we talked a little bit about that on Sunday, um, you know, that we live in like a cultural moment and really in the West, it's, it, it's America is very impatient. And so some of this is probably also absorbed um, like socially through our institutions and um, just the uh, marketplace, right? What do you see um, for people trying to cultivate patience uh, as yeah. some of the cultural hurdles to that? It's not something that's going to come natural to most right. of us. Yeah. So even if you aren't a busy person, you know, that kind of nine that's ratcheted up already. Um, we do live in a culture that demands or rewards intensity and a level of speed and quickness. And I, for me, like the, the first thing I think of is online engagement, how there is this uh, reward for instant response, instant reaction. Um, and even if it's a good thing, like a like or a comment to support somebody, like the, the, the cursor is just flashing there, like waiting for you to say something. And when things are, are coming through your feed, you're being conditioned to have this immediate response for good or bad. And, and it's not built for time or space or reflection. It, it really does reward that kind of instantaneous response and reaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, some people, some people may not be, I feel like some of our, some people in our church are like rebelling uh, by just not being present online as much, or they're, they're not on Instagram. They don't have a, an active Twitter account, but I know I definitely feel this as a public leader I, I remember last year when some of this stuff was happening culturally with or politically um you know president trump would do something or one of the you know um shootings you know um uh, with george floyd or mount aubrey there were there were just this cascade of things that happened and i remember a friend uh, kind of an acquaintance of mine who's a political he's kind of a christian leader institutional leader got online and said it was within like an hour or something of one of these things happening and, uh, and I hadn't even been online. Like I'd been off. I'm trying to practice silence and solitude. I'm trying to take fast, irregular fasts from digital media. And I remember him, I logged on a couple hours later, like 11 o'clock that night. And he said, if you haven't responded to this right now, then you don't care. You don't get to say anything. Silence is violence kind of thing. And I was like, wow, you know, that's the pressure that you feel to always have. And again, there is a time to speak. There is a time to quickly, you know, run to something and say, say something, but that's the kind of pressure that I think people feel. It's almost like we are all a brand, you know, and our brand has to get on the platform and say something. And if not, then we're somehow, um, you know, somehow complicit in it. And I love that you bring that word um, time up because that's really what this is about. It's like the timing of our responses and creating space for healthy responses. And, and that was something you brought up in the sermon that, um, I don't know if I hadn't really put two and two together, but that so much of our reactivity and the negative fruit is what reveals the lack of patience. So you spot a lack of patience, a lack of giving time, a lack of long suffering by things like uh, violence and reactivity and anger and aggression and all that kind of um, really quick responses 
is what reveals the lack of patience. And, and that was kind of a way of thinking for me that I hadn't really um, put it together. And, and it also made me think of how much um, tolerance we have for violent responses. Like we mm -hmm. have a really high threshold for aggression and violence in our culture. Um, and so when someone is impatient, we tend to be like, well, it's kind of understandable. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, we can understand why a person would feel that way and react that way. And so that was something I thought of as well. Like we don't necessarily view impatience as wrong, you know, like we understand it mm -hmm. um, in a way that I think probably isn't healthy. Yeah. And that's my biggest concern, honestly, um, when I think about this for our church and I think about this for our community is reactivity is some, is like a drug. It's, it's addictive. Impatience is, a, is addictive. And my concern is more in how we are relating to each other in kind of anxious, impatient ways that I just see so much. Again, it's like somebody does something, there's an escalation and a response that's quick and usually disproportionate, kind of exaggerated. And then it just escalates and, you know, watching people leave the church, leave their communities and bounce from community to community, or even be violent physically or verbally with one another, or, or just kind of like, like a languishing kind of in their relationships where it's like, there's a low grade anxiety. There's a low grade reactivity that may manifest itself in like being nice externally, but internally not really being patient with one another. And I, and I think that's a real threat to the future of healthy community. Right. Because there is this kind of faux patience, which is more a passive aggression where mm -hmm. you're just holding in. And then once it hits that threshold and it spills over, like it all comes out. And if you're on the receiving end of that, there is this like, what just happened? I thought you were a really chill person until this moment when in reality, it wasn't an exercise of patience. It was just more a passivity of kind mm -hmm. of um, not engaging the problem, not kind of uh, dealing with things. And another thing you mentioned that I thought particularly about um, patience within community is that within Galatians 5, it's patience with people mm -hmm. um, and how often people get in the way of the objective mm -hmm. we're trying to reach. And I particularly think of that within American culture where we're very objective driven, like we need to be efficient. We need to get to that thing. Wendell Berry talks about like our entire culture pursuing the objective, right? And people get in the way of getting mm -hmm. things done. They really do. Um, and I think of children particularly who are the most inefficient people, you know, and, and cultivating patience. I have found that if a person can be patient with a child, um, there's like a good indication that they're going to be patient with other people too. Um, just because it requires letting go of, not letting go of the goal, but maybe being willing for it to take longer or more time to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard, especially being in an urban setting, you know, you have all of these different vulnerable populations kind of in close proximity to each other, you know? And so you have, um, 
um, you know, different races, different ethnicities. Um, you have, you know, um, you know, not as many children actually, um, probably in the city, but you know, the children, women, you have, um, you know, the poor, um, and this kind of disproportionately represented, um, you know, and so, yeah, it's like, man, how, what is, what are the implications for this reactivity on our work with hurting, wounded, mm -hmm. um, vulnerable people, you know, right. like, like needing them to get with the program faster, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. this sense of, well, you know, especially if we have that kind of Messiah complex where we come in, we're like, I'm here to help. I'm here to rescue and this is how we're going to do it. And you need to come with us. And that kind of pressure on people's growth mm -hmm. um, because we want them to be at certain markers, um, whether they're valid or not. But but we push because of a lack of patience. We, we, we even push the growth process um, in ways that aren't natural, to mm -hmm. be quite frank. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thinking about that um and thinking about what it looks like to grow in patience you know that that's really the goal is you know to kind of point our, our attention to some of the ways that we're being formed towards reactivity um we i use the example of uh friedman's uh, kind of paradigm for uh family systems which is really just yeah so i want you I to unpack that a little bit because i heard it and i've heard it before and i heard you talking about it in the sermon and i I think I uh, know what you mean, but I also may have Googled some things afterwards. <laughs> so like, what's what's the idea there? Um, just like, because a family is a micro community. Yeah. And, and, and when we're talking about living in patience with other people, like the family is a remarkable space in our household, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, flatmates or, mm -hmm. you know, these are spaces where we are like, rubber meets the road, learning how to engage with these questions of reactivity. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's why I think that the family systems theory has so been so helpful for me. So I first came across it, uh, maybe 10 years ago, um, as I was doing some of my own work and my own impatience and my own journey towards, uh, a, a more, um, just wholehearted, uh, approach to life, um, and ministry, and it was essentially developed by Murray Bowen back in the, I think back in the seventies. And it's, it's essentially, you know, what he says is like psych, he's a psychologist and, and an author. And he's kind of pointing out the fact that we tend to focus on individual pathology, individual problems that people have. And we see things like impatience or anxiety as like, this is a person's personal issue. And he's, he said, that's not actually how, how it works. Like if you back up and you make the focus of concern, the the system that this person exists mm -hmm. in so in his writing he's family systems like family is an emotional system mm -hmm. that's the basic unit of study and it's the basic unit for him of then therapy um and and healing and you can apply this to an individual family you can apply this to a church and think about a church as kind of interlocking family systems you've got like the family system of the pastor and his family and you've got the individual congregants and then the the system as a whole um, you could look at an organization like this, you know, a executive team is a certain sort of emotional family, um, the organization as a whole, the stakeholders. And what was helpful for me was, you know, he basically says like it, it, within this emotional system, there's a tendency to, to fuse emotionally. There's a tendency to trade in anxiety and anxiety gets kind of passed around and kind of intensified in the system. And so 
he identified, um, I was going back and looking at some of it actually, it's really helpful to kind of think about it, but he identified like different patterns for how people, how anxiety kind of gets spread within the system and how people kind of show up. And he identified like four patterns, like one he called triangling. And so, you know, we tend to kind of triangle two people have conflict and then they, they pull a third person in, uh, and they, they triangle. He talks about, um, you know, uh, like conflict avoiders, uh, over-functioning, under-functioning, these kinds of things. But it, the, the basic thing is just that it's an emotional, we're, we're, we exist in these emotional systems and the anxiety gets traded around as we kind of heard. And the key for uh, growth and healing is for one person within that system to begin to differentiate themselves. And so what does it look like? And that's, I think of a definition of patience as just a non-anxious presence that's waiting on God and God for to do things, his purposes, his time. Um, and if we can recognize that we exist in a system, our families, our communities, even as a country in kind of this like toxic anxiety, and we can begin to step outside of that. I think you see that in Jesus, you know, he, he backs away from the crowd and he, and he goes to a desolate place and he prays. I think that is Jesus being a differentiated person. And, and he's, and he's getting kind of critical distance he needs with his father, um, to then enter back in and bring health and healing back to broken systems and broken structures and broken people. Yeah. And I, I think that description is so life-giving and hopeful, um, because you're right. I've experienced that kind of, um, building of anxiousness, like when you're in conflict with a person and if one of you could just break it, it would be a blessing to everyone. But instead what often happens is impatience begets impatience. And so you kind of, um, and that, that happens all the time. I just want to say all the time in my parenting, especially with Harry, like his impatience if I'm impatient in response, it's just going to fuel the fire of that and it turn, it explodes. And so one of the things I have learned just by stumbling over it is like, I do have to be the non-anxious presence for him. I have to slow him down. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the way I'll do it, and you know, he's 14 going on 15 now, so I don't know how long I'll be able to do this much more. But like when he was younger, I would just take him and give him a hug and physically calm him down by saying, I'm here, I'm present with you, come be present with me. And that would slow down the kind of reactivity and his kind of impatience that was happening, you know, not necessarily in interpersonal conflict, but just like trying to move through the world. And when I think about that in terms of congregational life or within our own families, um, I think it brings that point again, that we've talked about with all of the fruit of the spirit is that there's this communal dimension to it, mm-hmm. that none of these things are happening for us just as individuals. Like we are not just one uh, tree trying to cultivate fruit. We're part of this larger thing that's happening and our growth and our productivity is linked to each other um, in all of these virtues. And I couldn't help but think when I was listening to patients talk about you talk about patients and especially the communal dimensions of it um, about the cicada. Oh, well, let's talk cicada? about the cicada. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. all in with this. I, I, right. Having grown up in Kentucky and experienced some cicada cycles, I'm all in. Let's so, do it. So I think you guys, I think uh, like mid, mid, 
you say mid and southern Indiana is on target for brood 10 this year to emerge. Now cicada are like two inch long insects that live underground. Um, most of them live underground for 17 year cycles. Um, you'll see occasional individual cicadas that are not part of the 17 year cycle, like over the summer, and you might hear the sound. It's like a, a, a high pitched kind of, uh, well, it's like Pharaoh or you hear it in the summertime. It's very distinct. Um, but every 17 years, especially within the Eastern part of the United States, um, different broods emerge from their hibernation. And for about six weeks in the summertime, like the entire area will be just covered in millions and millions and millions of cicada. And you can't go outside without them coming on you or them covering everything. Now it's different in cities because this is a nice little tidbit I'll pass along. If the earth has been disturbed, in at any point in those 17 years, um, they probably are not there because uh, they were probably the, the the larvae were probably moved away. And, mm. But you find them in country spaces and anywhere near trees. Um, so these 17 years that these cicadas spend underground. I mean, like I can't imagine an insect living that long, let alone coming out for like three or four weeks just for the sake of mating and reproduction, then to go back underground for 17 years. And that was something I really got me thinking about how we measure time, how we understand what long suffering looks like, how we think things should progress in 17 years. And I actually wrote about um, cicada interning of days in one of the summer. We had our cycle last year, um, but I just want to read a little bit about this because mm -hmm. One of the other interesting features of cicada is that they all come out together, that they're waiting the patience that they exercise as a communal patience, mm. and they emerge together and they return together. Mm. So uh, this is just a little bit from the essay. What exactly does a cicada do for 17 years underground? In the last 17 years, I've married given birth to three children, written books, made mistakes, and have set myself up for more. We're talking nearly two decades that these bugs wait in darkness. So what goes down on down there in the soil all those years? The answer is as simple as it is infuriating. Growth. What happens hidden in the ground is that the cicada larvae grow and mature. For almost two decades, they wait feeding on tree roots until the, they cycle through five distinct stages of development. For almost two decades, they grow in the darkness so they can emerge in the light. This reminds me of how oddly God and nature measure time. It also reminds me of how patience and faith are bound up in each other and how we must let patience do her work if we ourselves are to mature. In his second epistle, Peter puts the dilemma this way. Scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, 
but everyone to come to repentance. By Peter's math, 17 years is like 17,000 and 17,000 is like 17, and I feel every bit of it. I don't like to think of myself as a scoffer, but I also can't help but think of all the times that God has waited longer than I wanted him to. Mm. God, it seems, does not measure time only in days and months and years, but also in moments and movements. He is exceedingly long-suffering and waits until the fullness of time has come. While we're concerned with Kronos, he concerns himself with Kairos, that moment when everything is in place, when the ground is warm enough and growth is complete. His is a patience good enough and kind enough to give us time to develop in dark, hidden places until we can emerge full and complete as one. Mm. That's so good. Um, I especially like that idea um, of Kairos versus Kronos time. Uh, maybe maybe it'd be interesting to hear you explain a little bit more about that. Because uh, I think as we talk about patience, it's not, right, it's not patience for the sake of patience. It's creating space and time for God to do the, I like the way you said, the hidden work, kind of the underground work that leads to repentance, that leads to reconciliation, that leads to wholeness and flourishing and being reconciled to God, reconciled to one another. I mean, that's, that's the goal of God's patience. The purpose of his patience is always this deep work. Um, talk a little bit about that. What, what is the difference? Explain Kairos versus Kronos. And then where do you see those opportunities in this moment for that hidden work, that underground work? Right. Well, you know, the, the most basic difference is that Kronos is just that linear sense of time that ticks off in regular intervals. It's um, the time of the calendar where it's um, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months. And at some point we're like, I've invested enough Kronos in whatever this thing I've been patient with. So, so it's measuring time by units. Um, or by these kind of regular, consistent, linear movement through time. Kairos is that sense that the scripture uses the fullness of time. When something is propitious, when something, when all the elements have finally come together um, and, and to the point that it's going to move something forward. So it is not the same thing as you've just put your time in right? That's Kronos. When we think about, I've put my time in, I should be a certain place by now. That's Kronos. Kairos can happen before you're ready or long after you thought it should have happened. And it's God bringing together in his providential care, all of the elements that are necessary within a particular moment for something to happen. And so when we think of patience or long suffering, what we're doing is not just enduring through chronos. Like I am just going to suffer for years and years and years with this person. And that makes me a good person. We're talking about waiting for Kairos. We're waiting for the work to be done both in our own hearts, in their heart. We're making space for the Holy Spirit in God's providence to bring everything together in a moment um, that allows for reconciliation or repentance and unity. So making space for each other is really making space for God. It's really making space for the Holy Spirit um, to do that hidden work that none of us can force. And I think a lot of impatience happens when we look at the calendar and we're like, this should have happened by now. Mm -hmm. I'm done. Mm 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like this sense of feeling behind or that maybe you're not, things aren't happening fast enough or they're not happening in, in the way that you kind of had imagined in your mind, right? Like, I think it's like, we have this ability. I think it's Eugene Peterson says, one of the things that sets us apart as humans, we have this ability to imagine a future mm-hmm. we're imagining beings and then, and then kind of start to kind of manipulate or try to bend reality towards that future is that. And so maybe it's, it's a little bit of a dissonance or experience in the sense of like, it's, it didn't happen in the way that I wanted or in the time frame. And then we grow impatience, right? Is that, is that kind of yes, and at? I think it's actually part of what's happening in a lot of um, kind of life crises that we encounter where we're like, I've invested this much time in this person or I've invested this much chronos in this space. And I'm looking forward saying, I'm, I'm only going to live so long. And I'm making those evaluations of chronos. I'm making the evaluation of, do I continue to be patient with this space? Do I continue to invest my time? Because every year I spend here, it's a year closer to my death, right? Mm. That's what is at the root, a lot of our existential and kind of life crises. Mm. If you can escape that cycle and think in Kairos, it doesn't mean that you always stay in one place, but it means that you're evaluating your movements on totally different um, bases and you have the benefit of eternity. So like, it was so funny to me even having experienced this myself, like the midlife crisis that we go through is only thinking about 80 years, right, of our lives. And we're people who claim to exist in a completely different reckoning Mm -hmm. of time. Mm -hmm. We're people who claim resurrection. We're people who claim that we're eternal beings. And yet here we are caught in this kind of impatience of chronos. And I think part of growing in the spirit is recognizing that the spirit, um, while has placed us in chronos and our lives and our days on this earth play out on that timeline, we're really creatures of Kairos and mm-hmm. moving toward that in our sense of making our decisions opens up space for patience. Mm. So in a sense, it's learning to reorient ourselves to a different time and then maybe cultivating some practices that help us um, enter into that, that kind of holy time, right? That sacred time, um, the eternal time, table of God. Um, so practically, I mean, just as we close, you know, what, what does that look like? I think of an experience that I had. So I talked Sunday about learning to slow, like the, the, the practice of slowing down and, and surrendering control of our time, mm-hmm. which I think is really at the heart of a lot of, um, our impatience is, is, we don't know how to slow down. We don't know how to um, surrender control, mm-hmm. especially as like a middle class. I'm in a middle, you know, we're in a middle class context here where people are used to exercising quite a bit of control over their lives. I had an experience at Gethsemane at an, uh, where Thomas Merton uh, spent some time uh, in Kentucky, my homeland, um, for sabbatical last year. And one of the things that was interesting, I mean, they live by the, their life, by the rule of life of kind of the Benedictine, uh, or that's their Trappist, um, the Trappist divine hours. And it was just fascinating. Like every couple of hours, the bells ring and literally whatever you're doing stops and you walk to, you slowly walk to the chapel. People dip their finger in the baptismal, uh, kind of font and they, you know, make the sign of the cross. They sit down and they, they pray and they chant and they do their thing. Um, and that's how they live their life. And it was like, it was like such a striking example of patience. Cause it's like, you don't control even your time. You have to stop what you're doing, put it down 
and, and, and kind of fall into this communal patience. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder just, yeah, like how, what that looks like in everyday life as we think about opportunities to enter into, I mean, that's what we're doing in church with liturgical time, you know, with the Advent season, the Lent season, we're, we're doing that in worship, you know, obviously as we slow down and we try not to hurry and make our services like super efficient and we just slow down to, to be a family together. But I don't know, have you found, what have you found to be helpful as you think about slowing and surrendering in your own life? Well, for me personally, it has included reevaluating expectations of how much needed to get done in a certain time. And um, so a lot of patience, as, as you've said, is related to interruptions or not getting to our goals or not operating on a certain timeline that we sh- thought should have happened. And just kind of letting go of control of not just your life, you know, timeline, but even your day. And I have to actively fight um, and surrender to the Holy Spirit's um, management of my individual days. And, you know, you get to the end of the day and you're impatient because you did not accomplish as much as you thought you needed to get done that day. And for me, it comes with a great deal of shame and a great deal of sense of I didn't you know, it's all that reactivity because I'm operating under shame. Therefore, I'm um, snippy and impatient with other people because I had things I wanted to get done. And evaluating, this was what I wanted to get done. Is this what God had for me today? And allowing that control, not just to go to other people to interrupt you, but to recognize that there is a divine providence at work, even in organizing and managing our schedules and the humility, cultivating the humility that allows for our schedule to be interrupted and for God to providentially reduce um, our efficiency, Mm. quite frankly, Um, and opening myself up to the fact that a day is not measured in time by how much I got done but by the obedience to, was this what God had brought to me today? Mm. Yeah, so, almost, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, so it's just reevaluating my expectations and my standards for what needed to be done in a certain amount of time. Mm. That's so good. I mean, yeah, I have a tendency to want to cram mm-hmm. so much into small chunks of time. And it's like, I kind of have to finish my agenda and then say, okay, how can I cut down like 50 to 75% of this? Because I'm just not going to get there. Right, because and, if you if you don't leave space, even in your planning for interruption, um, like we're leaving space for God and the Holy Spirit to bring people into our lives and to have that margin to say, I am going to proactively put myself in a place where God can interrupt me, mm-hmm. where I can take time to be present with someone that needs me to be present with them where I'm not being driven by the clock. I'm mm-hmm. being guided by the spirit in these encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore allowing that spirit, the spirit to do the work of producing that patience with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe like a shift for me has been from reacting to responding. Mm-hmm. And, and I think of it as uh, reacting is like, I'm anxious and I see this person as a disruption to, 
responding to a divine invitation to say, mm -hmm. like Emily will say, like in the flow of providence, in the flow of what God's doing today, he's brought this person in your life. He's brought this situation in your life that you didn't, you couldn't have anticipated. And so like yesterday, just practically like we're two days ago, I'm driving a staff retreat down in Columbus, an hour south of here, you got to take some country roads and I'm moving along at a great pace. I'm making good time. Wait, I got to be wait, there. Wait, wait. A tractor? Was yeah, it a no, tractor? So it wasn't a tractor, uh, but it was a truck pulling some kind of farming device, farming implement. Mm -hmm. And of course I round the corner and this person's doing five miles an hour and I get behind him and I literally caught myself uh, breathing like really intensely. And I just had to go, okay, I'm responding to this divine invitation to slow down and see this is something that God wants to teach me right now. And in and, 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 and this moment, it worked out beautifully because he pulled off to the side. He saw that I was kind of like trailing him pretty close. And he pulled off to the side and he waved me. Oh, and so, I, such so, a nice. So God rewarded your patience. The, no, not saying. at all. Not at all. So it's <laughs> using the opposite. Something It gets worse. But in this case, it actually turned out. But but I think just recognizing like part of it, half the battle is like recognizing my reactivity and reframing that as I'm responding to God's invitation. God is here with me by his spirit. So I'm going to take the slow route today. I'm going to walk. I'm going to get in my fixie without gears and take a slower route, or I'm going to create some space in my day to allow myself to respond and not feel like I'm behind. And I think that's the kind of stuff for me that's it's so practical. And yet it's so challenging to just be able to name that, take a deep breath, reframe the moment, and then say, okay, I'm responding to God, not even to this person or the situation. Yes. Well, lots we could talk about here, but this is so, so good. I love, uh, I love these ideas and I hope this has been helpful to you if you're listening. Um, I know it's complex. Some of you exist in very impatient business systems, very impatient family systems, uh, community, community systems. This is going to require a ton of experimentation and humility and the spirit's work, uh, not only in us as individuals, but in us as a community. And so I, uh, I'm thankful for the time, Hannah. Thanks for sharing your time. Thanks for the, your work there uh, in turning of days. And we will be looking eagerly for the cicadas as they begin their uh, holy, divine, providential invasion of Indianapolis here over the next several weeks. So we'll talk to you soon. We'll look forward next week. We'll come back. We'll be talking about um, gentleness uh, in a time of, of harshness. And so we look forward to hopefully seeing you guys bear care on the podcast next week. Bye.